Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is sound designer and lead mixer at the famed Hollywood Bowl and Walt Disney Concert Hall, Fred Vogler. But a lot of people are talking about music may actually disappear from the radio in 10 years. Streaming is making a huge impact on what we listen to. And it seems that radio is slowly but surely switching all over to talk. Now, we could see this happening in the fact that some of the major, major music radio stations have been sold just recently. Cumulus Media, for instance, that's the second largest station group, sold off its flagship stations in New York City, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and San Francisco. Emus Communications just sold off their stations in Austin and New York City. So it's pretty obvious that radio is taking a big hit from streaming. It's not that people don't listen to the radio, because they do. We keep on seeing survey after survey that tells us that adults listen to radio an awful lot every day. The current amount is about 102 minutes per day. That's only a 4% decline over the last few years. Now, most of that, granted, is in cars, but people do like the radio. They like it for companionship, especially when there's a DJ talking to them, and ease of use. We've been working with the radio for years and years, and let's face it, it's somewhat easier to use than any streaming service. We all know how to do it. We don't need instructions. We don't have to worry about the user interface. So all that being said, we're still listening to radio, but not so much music on radio. But it seems like that music format isn't going away anytime soon because we do like that as well. It's just going to transition online. So we're going to be listening to radio or radio-like formats where it's going to be presented to us online, maybe more and more as we go along. And don't be surprised if 10 years from now, we don't listen to music on the radio at all. have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. <laughs> Here's something that everybody should know, especially if you're a singer. You should know how to hydrate your voice. And there's a lot of tricks. Now, you think, well, I drink a lot of water, but that's not the only trick. And there's really more to it than that. A really good trick, though, is to drink melon water. And why melon water, you say? Well, because the melon molecules are actually larger than water molecules, and they stay in the vocal tract a whole lot longer. So they hydrate your voice for a lot longer period of time. Another thing that you should be aware of is that humidity should be at an optimal 40%. So if you're in a studio that has low humidity, that's going to burn out your vocal cords a lot faster than if you're in a place that has higher humidity or, like I say, optimal humidity at 40%. You should be eating foods with high water content. That's salads, fresh fruits, veggies, cucumbers, lettuce. You're eating your water, in other words. But beware of citrus. Orange juice actually induces phlegm. So you have to watch exactly what kind of fruits that you are enjoying before you're going to sing. Lemon water, however, is okay. Lemon actually does exactly what we need it to do. Broths are good. Miso, vegetable excellent for your voice, but no tomato or cream-based sauces. The reason why is it will give you indigestion. Watch your caffeine levels. Why? Well, caffeine dehydrates us. You shouldn't have any more than 500 milligrams at a time, and remember that a cup has anywhere between 58 and 280 milligrams of caffeine in it. Also, if you're in a studio, remember that coffee gets stronger the longer it stands out. And we all know coffee can stand out for a long time in the studio and become rocket fuel before you know it. Instead, go herbal. Have some nice tea, mint, hibiscus, chamomile, 
swallow often because that dislodges mucus and mucus is no good. And also be careful of alcohol because it causes the body to lose fluid. So all these things will keep your voice in much better health because you're going to be hydrating properly. And hydrating is the key to a really strong voice. My guest this week is six-time Grammy Award winner Fred Vogler, who's the principal sound designer and front-of-house mixer for the Hollywood Bowl and Walt Disney Concert Hall. Throughout the year, he also records the Los Angeles Philharmonic, the L.A. Opera, Los Angeles Master Chorale, and the Mormon Tabernacle Choir for commercial and broadcast release. Fred is also one of the first live mixers to work in immersive audio using the Eliza system on high-profile events like Dead Mouse and the L.A. Phil's 100th anniversary tour show in Seoul, South Korea. During the interview, we spoke about mixing in an immersive environment, what it's like to mix at the Hollywood Bowl, what happens if a visiting mixer gets too loud, the punishing schedule during the summer, and much more. I spoke with Fred via Skype from a studio in Hollywood. Let's talk a little bit about Elisa and your experiences, especially going from a normal stereo system to something that's immersive, because that seems like it would take a little bit of getting used to. Well, I think you have to define immersive a little bit. Um, I have done a lot of recordings for commercial release based on um, kind of the stereo image and, and idea of collecting sound and reproducing it with the highest fidelity which means typically you use, you know, the fancy wires, the fancy power cords, the cleanest signal path and all this. And when, when 5.1 started becoming more of a thing, I remember thinking, oh, this is really expanding the um, horizon for audio and the possibility of dimension because suddenly you have dedicated center channel. And, and you still are kind of putting stuff together between left and center and center and right, and then adding your surrounds in. And I've been on various um, committees and stuff over the years, even for the Grammys, where you're auditioning or listening to people's um, surround mixes. And it was always kind of interesting to hear how people would use the surround speakers and what, what was the perspective. Are you trying to create, uh, you know, like your in the environment sitting out in the house and you're hearing the surrounds like reflective energy off the walls or people around you or and sometimes you'd hear product that somebody was screw that they just put you know elements that were discrete in the surround so it was a completely almost a, a departure from what is immersive or what is surround sound and um when i got introduced to elisa um, it was sort of like, hey, this is an immersive system. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, I've seen various versions of immersive things before. And it was about six years ago, actually. And there was a secret, super secret room in um, the uh, uh, L Acoustics lab or, or in their main headquarters. And I went into this room. And I guess not a lot of people had been in the room because even employees didn't know what was in the room or what was going on in that room, but it was underneath and, and kind of a out of the way, um, area. Um, so in fact, I had visited the factory before and was not introduced to the room or didn't know the room existed. So this was an interesting um, opportunity. And I was said, Hey, you know, we would like to invite you to see, um, this, this system. And I remember going into this room and there were 13 arrays so there was one in the center and six off center. And so there were, you know, these arrays and they were all using kind of their medium to small size um, uh, boxes, but there were six of them in each array. There was a lot of PA for this room. And and I thought, oh my gosh, I mean, I thought I had bad, you know, I, and, and I've, like I said, I've been in surround environments. I've been in um, rooms that people are set up for, you know, what they call immersion or, or sonic immersion. And, and I'd never seen anything like this and I was sort of skeptical. Um, so there was 13 main arrays, excuse me, and there was four zones. So, and a sub, so it wasn't just the main, these arrays in front, but there was four zones behind me and then some sub woofer. And I thought, all right. And they had, they had told me to bring some multi-track material. Uh, like I said, I've recorded a lot and, I've recorded symphonic, choral, operatic, big band, and electronica. 
um, it's kind of more of the stuff that I've gotten into more so than like a rock or a pop band. But, um, so I had brought a hard drive and, and, um, I had files from different things and, and they played me a couple examples of stuff. And one of them I remember was sort of like a story being told to you almost like radio drama only with sounds coming from all around. And, you know, the, it was very, um, it was interesting because they would set the stage with this um, sonic experience of, of, you know, seagulls and waves and boats and horns. And, and, you know, it was pretty interesting. I mean, there was a lot of different sounds and, and they had a lot of uh, elements to create the sound. But I was thinking, oh, okay, it's a little bit of a gimmick to me. I mean, I didn't know what to say. And then they played me some music um, more along the lines of film score-ish, you know, I mean, it was you know, presented in a way. And I think there was even a, there was something that was more pop oriented, but all that aside, they told me to, you know, here, just mix with it, play with it, see what you think. And again, I, I was skeptical. I thought, yeah, you got too many arrays and they're too close together. Um, but, but I hadn't really been introduced or really under, I didn't really understand object-based mixing. You know, I, I came into it thinking stereo and again, stereo, you're thinking, you know, phantom image, you're thinking creating something, between elements that don't doesn't really exist but you you balance and you pan and you you know there's little offsets of delay and whatnot and you can kind of create a a source that's between those um uh speakers and and it's you know it can be really rewarding and that's pretty much what i had been trained to do and had experienced but this room was all about object based so i took some choral orchestral stuff um, like Orf or something, Carmina Burana or something. So I knew there were distinct choral bits. And I knew there were distinct um, instrumental bits. And, and I started separating them from the speakers so that not all the, um, the each of these stacks had the same material. Um, and the way that Elisa and the controller operate, you, you not only dis, um, send something to one array, but you can also kind of spread it amongst arrays. So you can kind of fan it out a little bit. Um, and what I started to realize right away is, whoa, you know, I've got, I have this new landscape. I have this new um, palette of places to put all these um, sources that I haven't had before. And by separating the elements, you know, so um, I have the chorus in, you know, two, six, uh, eight and whatever speakers I, I could, I could spread them. And then I put instrumental or orchestral elements in other ones and I could kind of treat them differently. And, and, um, so just the static mixing as far as not moving stuff around, but just presenting sounds that were sent discreetly and directly into each of the speakers, um, in an individual way was, um, was pretty rewarding. Suddenly I heard a resolution and I heard um, a dimension that was more realistic to what I had experienced before um, and un kind of unexpected. And especially because I used the zones that were behind for the idea of reflective or, or returns from the, the space that you're listening in. So if, if you're in a concert hall, I could put the the um, crowd and all that stuff in the out in the zones. And then there was subwoofer. So Suddenly, I, I listened to this, and I thought, man, that has got to be one of the best um, reproductions yet, you know, as, as far as realistic and convincing um, playback of sources that I've recorded and that I know what they sound like. For instance, one of them was Mormon Tabernacle Choir Christmas Show, because um, I've done a lot of recordings with them in Salt Lake City, and I know what it sounds like in that acoustic. I've been in there a lot, and suddenly it sounded pretty, pretty good for what I had created in this room. You know, it sounded more alike to anything I'd heard with that much force. Um, when we record these, the Christmas shows in particular, they have 360 voices and about 110 piece orchestra and soloists. So it's, you know, there's 400 and something people, almost 500 people. There's dancers and stuff too. But so the forces are really big and it's quite a, quite a bit to try to make a stereo left, right reproduce. And suddenly I had all these elements and I had all this horsepower, you know, endless head headroom comparatively. And it was, it was pretty shocking. 
then I started going into some of the other elements. I had brought other um, files that I brought, and one of them was electronica stuff that I do um, as a something to do separate from all the acoustic and more orchestral stuff that I'm in, or classical stuff that I'm involved in. I have a uh, electronica project, and suddenly I started saying there are no rules. You know, here we are. I can put kick drum you know, on my left, I can put snare on my right, I can put the bass in the middle, I can put the guitars, the keyboards, I can separate everybody into their own array or, you know, stack. And I can use the zones for other elements, other pads or synth synthetic pads, or I can move, um, move other stuff in and around the whole space. And the way that the Eliza um, controller operates, it's very intuitive and you can seamlessly kind of move stuff from one array to the next it doesn't jump it doesn't have a, a like a you know kind of a um choppy way of going it just seems like oh you can move it over there come back over this way and you can automate this stuff and blah blah, blah. it just opened up ideas that i hadn't experienced and, and thought of before so the immersive quality to me suddenly it wasn't just immersive it was more um it was a tactile experience of moving the air molecules musically around me. And I know it sounds goofy, but that's that's kind of what I came out of there thinking, oh my gosh, this is this is something extraordinary. And I was really jazzed. I'm I'm sure that people have experienced this with other multi-speaker systems. I don't know if their controllers or the ability to move the parts around are as intuitive. I mean, the Elisa one is pretty... Um, amazing and and simple or, or more simple to use um, so yeah because I've used some of the other companies you know panning or whatever super um, uh, matrixing and it's it's a little clumsy you know comparatively the Lisa you know you put your object there and you start moving that thing around you have a visual and you can grab that that element and move it to the speakers that you're, you see graphically um, and then like I said you can spread it or you can push it back to add a little space or a little um, delay to it or you can pull it forward and have it more punchy in the in the front of the sound so it redefined immersion for me and it gave me a sense of um, what's possible um, musically is is expanding dramatically um, and, you know, I, I started thinking about scalability. You know, here we are in this room. It was a pretty good-sized room. I'm, you know, I'm not – it wasn't a small room we were doing this in, but it, it wasn't an arena or, you know, some kind of a larger performance venue. Um, so that that's kind of – I don't know if you've experienced it or if you've seen Eliza in that way, but that's something to think about is what it means for immersive audio. You know, I haven't, but I have experienced Dolby Atmos, and that gave me the same feel. Have you compared them? I have, and um, I've heard um, Atmos not in an ideal setting, to be honest with you. Um, uh, I want to go back to Blackbird Studios. A buddy of mine, John McBride, who the owner of Blackbird, um, has just put in... I guess the ultimate um, Atmos experience, um, room, and I'm eager to go back and listen because I've heard it at trade shows or you know in in kind of a modest setting, and again it's pretty small scale. Um, I haven't heard it, um, and I haven't mixed on it myself. But I was at a scoring session yesterday, and you know it was a Williams scoring session for Star Wars and they're recording it so they can do Atmos. And I, and I think it's pretty exciting. You know, the, I was looking at the additional mics overhead over the conductor to over the winds, over the percussion in the back. And I was thinking about how you would best um, bring or, or introduce those mics into a mix. And they're not mics that you would introduce into a stereo for sure. Stereo mix, cause they would add a lot of, um, probably bizarre you know sound if you had mics that were in the back of the room at least the back of the um orchestra not the back of the, the hall or the, the studio um so 
I'm, I'm eager to hear John's new system and um, get a better sense of it. You know, the Atmos, I don't know if it's scaled or ever intended to do, you know, an arena or something larger scale than a good theater or something. Yeah, I'm not sure about that either. I heard it at Capitol Studio C, so that was a pretty good venue. I also heard it at Avid, and that was in a very small room, and it translated fairly well. Capital C is not a huge room, but nonetheless, the feeling was really sufficient. I did a lot of 5-1 mixing myself, so I was quite experienced in that and experienced in, in the, the overall operation, let's say. And this was completely different. I think just, you know, forget which system we're talking about. It's immersive audio, and it's in a, a different way of approaching it than we have before, as you say, because it's object-based. So that really makes a big difference, I think. And it's something that, it seems to me, it takes some getting used to. How long did it take you to get used to, to mixing like that? To be honest with you, um, like I said, I was trained to think stereo forever. And when I mic or um, go to capturing a source, I often think, oh, I got to put a left and a right or a high and a low or, you know, two mics. And and it became evident or obvious that two mics isn't the technique for object-based. Maybe it's three mics, you know? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's it's a, just a good single mic um, because you're, you're taking these elements and you're not necessarily going between two speakers. Um, maybe you're skipping a speaker or you want to have um, the ability to um, move it more easily. And two mics is, is a... It's bizarre because, again, you're not trying to create an image between two, two of the arrays. Um, and, and, again, I haven't done the theater size. I've gone to um, you know, bigger venues with, with these systems from, from L Acoustics. And, you know, you notice differences from the studio because they have a control room studio environment with smaller boxes that are, I guess, in a sense, uh, the same relative distance a part that it gets as you get bigger and they put a bigger speaker there. And so the idea is that you can start small and then go to bigger rooms. Um, but you know, room acoustics and the, the, um, I guess the size of the boxes that you're using have a big impact on, on the mix. So I'm, I still want to play. I, I mean, I'm still excited to find out how far you can push it and what are the, um, the advantages of certain miking or certain types of mics. Um, you know, I learned a lot even in the last year. I did a show earlier this um, this year in March um, for the LA Philharmonic in Korea, and we had 11 main arrays in the front um, and no zones in the back, just 11 main arrays, but it was an acoustic, you know, orchestral uh, presentation. There was there wasn't any electronic instruments out there. And... Um, it was it was awesome. I mean, really had a lot of fun with it. And again, I didn't mic it for a stereo. I mic I had I had three mics for the soloist. Um, it looked kind of funny or looked kind of interesting to see a three of these Colette tubes from Sheps for the violin player. But I wanted to, you know, do something that I thought would make a difference, and and that's for the piano too, and for certain spe- um, certain instruments. I think you just have to. I thought in in terms of three instead of in terms of two mm-hmm. for every. So if I was putting mics in front of the brass, made sure there was left center right, in front of the winds, left center right, in front of the percussion. If I had sec, um, little setups of percussion, I made sure they were threes uh. um, because then I could around the arrays and I always had a um, a center focus and then I could widen it or widen the whole thing. And um, so that was one thing for sure. Okay, there's something I'm not getting here. So when we look back at 5.1, what gave you the immersiveness in that was the fact that you had speakers behind you for the most part. And in any of the surround formats, you have speakers that are, are spread around the room. And in Atmos, it's the same way. But in uh, Eliza, it seems like you just talked about there's five arrays across the front. And I'm just curious about how you get the immersion from that when everything is in front of you. Well, the the job in Korea, we had eleven arrays, 
Um, and they were pretty wide, you know, across this spectrum. And the way that the seating was configured it was in a, an arena, 10,000, 11,000 people um, could attend or were in attendance. And um, I would have loved to have some extra, you know, behind me or around the back of the auditorium speakers as well. It just wasn't in the cards for this because of the seating and stuff. It was going to take a lot more time and and parts to make those speakers come up but again the room acoustics played a big role when you're when your wavefront um is coming from 11 large format arrays of speakers you know you're really exciting the space and and it's it's a tidal wave i mean it's not a it's not just two elements that are pushing sound at you um sometimes scott uh, we can try He's, he's around. I don't know why he's not online, but he, he describes that people jumping in the pool. And, you know, if you have a, a pool and, and two bodies hit the water, they're going to create a certain wave of energy. Now, imagine 11 bodies hitting that, that pool. And, it, it, and if they're hitting it and they're all time aligned and they're all in sync, it's going to even be a bigger wave and it's going to impact the, the water uniformly, but in a bigger way. And yeah. that's, what, that's what happened. And so the immersive quality... Yeah, it wasn't surround immersive, but it um, but it was certainly impactful for what you were feeling. And and if you look at a, a left right configuration, I, I just use left right because it's easier than left center right. Most of the time, it's left right. Um, if your house right or if you're sitting over to the right, you're going to hear a lot of the right arrays um, elements. And if you're if you're in the um, left side, you're going to hear a lot of the left array. Um, and in this configuration with 11 arrays, it wasn't like you were hearing a left side or a right side. You were just hearing this epic wall of sound. Um, so that that was different. And it, I, again, I think it, it comes back to defining immersion. You know, is, is your immersion excitement based on all these sound, you know, waves around you? And what triggers or, or what's the source of those um, sound waves? Um, maybe isn't as important as the excitement that you can generate. Um, and, you know, a lot of times when you have um, surround speakers, I'm looking at my surround speakers in my studio now, you know, I can't put percussive elements in those speakers if I have them coming out of the front and make it time align perfectly all around the room. Yeah, I mean, you know, you'll have delay time issues when you're closer to it or you're further from it. And, and so do you really... You know, you have to consider those um, side and rear speakers differently. Th this system was all front-loaded for what it, uh, all intents and purposes, but it was so big and wide and and grand that uh, I don't know. I, I didn't really miss the um, you know surrounds to think, oh man, it could have been immersive. I just could have put more reverb return or something else in there to you know bring or draw people more in than than they all already were. I don't think anybody actually missed it. It just would have been another dimension to add to it. Let's go back to the beginning. How did you get started in this crazy business that we're in? Well, I think like most people, you know, you start probably pretty young. You like music. You've been um, somehow uh, introduced to it or, you know, your parents or friends and everybody wanted to, you know, perform or have something musical around. And, and I certainly got exposed young i had um bandmates and one of my the drummer in our band's father had a studio at home and i remember seeing that when i was 12 you know a, a eight track and a half inch eight track and i couldn't believe you could record and then record on top of that and record. the whole concept was amazing and, and going through bands and collecting equipment and horse trading for you know this upgrade or that next keyboard or guitar or microphone or whatever was was always in the cards and i think i got lucky because there was um in schools sort of an opportunity to start to study recording arts and study this type of technology and figure out how to make it um uh, more of a, a genuine career I mean, it wasn't just a hobby anymore. You know, suddenly there was a, a program and, you know, how to set up 
recording environments or, you know, you didn't just learn it from a vocational school or something. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, and I feel really strongly about it. You know, there is a technique and it's all art. You know, there's a lot of technology and understanding the technology and getting a sense of signal flow and, and what kind of um, power requirements or heat or all that that comes from different um, electronics. But, but you also have to look at this as a, it's just an instrument, it's a tool. And, and I tell people who go, man, you know, those speakers just sound great. And I go, well, you know, the speakers don't inherently sound great or the system doesn't inherently, no more than a grand piano inherently sounds great. Somebody has to play it. Somebody has to have the skill or the knowledge or the, the technique. And, um, you know, the better the technique and skill, the better it's going to sound, that instrument. And so all these things around us, whether they're compressors or speakers or microphones, they're just instruments. And figuring out how to use them has been a lifelong um, passion. And, you know, I was that guy who collected and, and stayed at home and played with those things in the room and, you know, wanted, you know, and finally got a thing set up in the garage. I had that, you know, the garage studio like most of us have. And, yeah. you know, and. And that's, it's been the same story I hear from all, most of my colleagues that are in the business. They, yeah. they all start, had their little studios at home and continued with it. Well, okay. So you started on that side of the business and you ended up on, on the live side, or at least a good portion of what you do is on the live side. And usually it goes one way or the other. You're one of the few people I think that can straddle both sides. But what I'm interested in is how you got to the live side. Because it sounds like you started more in the studio, right? Yeah, I started more studio. Well, I got really lucky. Um, there was a time when I was going to school and, and I had an internship. I, I was in Los Angeles, and so I had two internships um, simultaneously. One was um, at A&M Studios in Hollywood, and that was when Herb still owned the studios, and there were all the rock stars in there, you know, the Terry Bozio, the... Um, Mark Knopfler's, the um, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Bruce Springsteen's, all these different cats were showing up there. And, and wow, what a, what a scene. Um, but I also was working for the um, local classical radio station as a field recorder when we would do concerts. And, and I think that I chose that path. I like the idea of being able to work with orchestral um, ensembles. I like the challenge of it, I kind of got turned on by audiophile recording and, you know, location audiophile recording. Uh, and I think that it, it sent me down a path that was different than the studio world. And I don't know what would have happened in the studio world. There's a lot more interest in that and a lot more competition. And what I went off to do was symphonic or, you know, chamber and stuff, you know, and some of it choral. Uh, and somewhere in that, process um uh streisand uh barbara streisand was going to revisit touring and you know you know how these things work out somebody knows somebody and and they needed somebody to help with um organizing the orchestral sound for the lead mixer who was bruce jackson and i didn't know bruce jackson but bruce had done live sound all his life was a main you know one of these big figures in live sound and you know elvis presley and bruce springsteen amongst among many yeah. but and he, he was put in the seat to to do barbara and um and he was looking for somebody to look after orchestral uh, balance because she was going to tour with marvin hamlish and, and an orchestra and, and then had a band so they put me in a room off stage not out in the house no matter my complaining because I wanted to be out in the house and see this thing. But anyway, I was off stage and, and I was putting together um, a mix of, you know, the orchestra. And I would send it to Bruce to front of house and pretty much, you know, I would send the mix. It wasn't, um, wasn't broken out. Uh, not like stemmed out or anything. It was like, here, give me an orchestra mix. Okay. And, and so I did this tour and, and got to see some of the live stuff. And in that, same kind of period, there was some uh, work with um, Irvine Meadows and Pacific Symphony, who was also looking to do work. The Hollywood Bowl at that time had a, another path and you know, had different personnel. So, yeah, as you know, the record industry um, is pretty fickle and was having issues in the 90s with um, uh, digital um, media and people trying to figure out how to 
um, capture streams or, or downloads and stuff like that because the CDs uh, at some point we're going to run out. I mean, people weren't going to pay for our audio if they can get it free online, especially young people or get it on, on the web. And, and so I kind of transitioned in that period. Um, and I, I continued making recordings, especially classical and I had my own label and all that stuff, but I just kind of started picking up more live shows and did some work at the Getty museum. Um, they were doing a summer series and I did Pacific symphonies outdoors and, did a couple tours like the Streisand and um, next thing you know, you know, you're kind of thrust into a, a different world. And, and, and I kind of um, also looked at it as a, um, I like the idea of the challenge, you know, the putting it together in a, in a quick fashion you know, you go into studios and sometimes, you know, it's like, boy, guys, let's, can we pick up the pace? I mean, how yeah. many times do we have to capture that section? Um, you know, once the, Especially when the concert's happening, it, it you know that train's left the station. You're you're on air, and and you know as a live mixer, you're a performer. You know you you nothing is static. You know you're it's a dynamic experience, even classical. Every now and then things lock in, and and you've got the balance, and you've got the elements all singing, and and it's you know all in the hands of the conductor and the ensemble. But most of the time, you have to watch stuff, especially if there's soloists. You know they'll play too soft or they'll get inaudible and, and you have to ride the fader um, or something somebody leans in and the ensemble a wind player or a percussionist or somebody hits something and you know or, or god forbid there's some sort of a failure of some component you know it is electronics and and then you have to balance and, and make do if you lose a main mic or if you lose something that's um, a main element but I, I uh, started doing live sound and, and um, got to the Hollywood Bowl. It was a series of events, again, um, fortuitous for me that I had the experience and they were looking for somebody new to take over. And, and it worked out that I was able to come in. And that was like 2003 now. It's hard to believe. And, um, and with my resource, uh, Bruce Jackson was, became a friend by this point. And, and he was excited to help set me up and, and put me, you know, in a, in a good path. So I was introduced to people, you know, at Yamaha. We had a new Yamaha digital console right away. We had some of the new um, processors that, that uh, Lake had been putting out, you know, that Bruce had been a part of this uh, design in this company. And only Claire Brothers had had it for that up to that point. And suddenly I got Lake processors at the bowl that were tablet based and had all this stuff right away. And we started miking it with, with more of, um, you know, film and classical recording techniques in mind. You know, we use to this day, we use Sheps and Neumanns and AKGs and DPA and, you know, nicer microphones. It's not like I have just a bunch of utility mics out on the stage. We have really sophisticated, um, nice mics that you'd be happy to score a movie with or make a recording, you know, for posterity's sake with, but we use them in the con on stage at the Hollywood bowl. And, you know, I mean, I think that the live experience for me has been rewarding. I find, um, it it's in a venue like the Hollywood bowl where we have jazz and pops, uh, world music, rock and roll and classical. I'm, I'm fortunate to see and hear and be part of, a wide range so it's there's not the same thing every day and even if we're doing mozart every tuesday and thursday for a couple of weeks it's not the same it's always different yeah well are you the the main mixer so if there's uh an act that comes in with their mixer do they get their hands in the fader or is it always you with them uh, directing you most of the time if it's a tour or somebody's working with an artist they're mixing that artist um a lot of times artists come without uh, sound person, which is always great. I mean, I, I mix a wide range of stuff there. I, I think I was recently talking or we were thinking of how many different shows I've mixed. And I think to date I've mixed or been part of mixing at least 1200 shows there. So wow. no one's mixed more shows at the bowl than I have in, in the history of that place. And, uh, a lot of them are orchestral, but, but a lot of them are jazz and, and other stuff. And, if, if they come in with a tour and they have their own consoles, yeah, they're mixing it. It has to go through the board that is feeding the system. 
it's a county of Los Angeles facility, and it's mandated that the um, signal flow goes through a board that can be, or some kind of signal thing that can be altered in case the visiting mixer doesn't want to bring you know the levels down. We have to have control, and um, you know we don't compress or EQ or anything that that feed. We it's usually just a pass through. And if levels start getting a little too great, then we have to tell them, hey, either you bring it down or we'll bring it down. And it's much better if you bring it down. You'll lose headroom if I have to bring it down. Yeah. And people, you know, at this point, I've seen a lot of the mixers you know, from over the years. They, you know, mixers, it's a small industry, really. And you see them with one artist or another artist and you become friendly and you know, you know what what's up and you show them, you know, what the speed limit is or how loud they can go. And um boom, you're off. And if it's a show that has orchestra elements, I'm often involved in those, you know, in some capacity. I'm adding or putting orchestral elements on their show. We had Chrissy Hind recently, and um, that was great. You know, I, I really enjoy um, Chrissy and, and the music of the Pretenders, and we had the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra. And so um, Chrissy's mixer put her stuff together, and I put orchestra with it. Um, and we do this with a lot of artists. So... Uh, most of the time it's 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 a mutual thing and again if it's something that's just a single one shot then i just soon either somebody gives me some navigation you know they tell me there's a solo in this one or look for um these things and in, in these tunes or just stay out of the way and enjoy the show you know take a <laughs> you know take a walk around the venue and tell me how it sounds in the back or off yeah you know the side or whatever you know i i get to walk around a lot so i i know what it sounds like there yeah What's the biggest challenge for you? Well, we, we have a punishing schedule, especially in July and August, where we work you know, virtually every day. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's not the same show, so we have completely different setups. I rely heavily on the skill of the crew, and, which is highly skilled and very um, accommodating. And, and they, you know, they do a 12 eight to 12 show every day, 8 a.m., 12 midnight, and they go home and they're back at eight next day. And it's unbelievable that they can do that seven days a week for multiple weeks. And um, it's it's all based on time, I think. I think it's just how much time we have. And, and typically, we're, we're always trying to predict and plan and be prepared for the oh, by the ways or the unexpecteds. And yet, something sneaks through or comes out or comes at you and you're like, Oh God, I didn't think about that. And if I had a little more time and if we do a show twice, so we have a rehearsal one morning and then a show that night, then we have another show the following, um, you know, with a little more time, a little more thought and all that stuff, it, it's usually tighter or better. Um, because when we get one rehearsal and that's the time that we're allotted, um, we better have chosen right getting into it, you know, whether it's the type of mic or what kind of micing or, you know, all the other things that you're balancing. Um, I think that's where it comes into play. Uh, and fortunately we've seen a lot. Uh, it doesn't mean for whatever reason, no matter how many times you do shows, you, it's always something new. It seems. And so it, it's it helps that we've done a lot of shows or I've been around for a lot of shows and, you know, just trying to be fast as quickly as possible. We got to get a sound and get moving. And, you know, people's expectations, by the way, of sound is are sometimes just completely whacked. You know, they, they, they expect you to turn on and make sound. You know, and, you know, I'm trying to get a sound. I'm organizing the parts. But there's very, very little um, patience out there. You know, I've done shows, you know, Star Wars in concert. We did a, a tour with this um some years ago, and I remember coming to the O2, and I had this London Philharmonic Orchestra, and um, you know, it was a big, big show, big orchestra, and um, big you know, setup, and all this at the O2, and everybody stands there and waits for you know, as a mixer, for you to go. And when that band starts up and they start playing, they don't wait around. It's like, where, where, what's going on? How come I'm not hearing this? You know, you're trying to hear how much the winds or the mics are working or the brass or the percussion. Pretty much people don't want to hear that. They want to hear the mix. Go, go, go. And and a lot of times people, even people that are 
around it a lot don't understand how much art and, and thought has to go into it to make something work. And that's whether the, because it's not just throw another mic on it or put another speaker out or just turn it on. It, you know, you can't just turn everything on, you know, yeah. it's, it's out of control. Then um, You have to be judicious in how you bring elements into or introduce elements. And sometimes less is best. You know, you don't want to add stuff you don't need. And you don't want to waste time on things that aren't worth fighting for. Um, and you know everything's going to be one way in rehearsal and a different way at night. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's similar qualities and similar kind of vibes. But, you know, we did a, a Mahler symphony a couple of weeks back, and it was an 85-minute piece. And we rehearsed the piece in the morning. And of course, we didn't rehearse it in order. It was movement one, movement five, movement four, movement two, and then three. And each of the movements, um, there's different offstage solos, there's you know chorus, there's onstage solo. And, uh, and that night came around, and, and there's no intermission, 85 minutes, and I'm in the game. I'm, I don't get to stop. I don't rest. I don't have any tacit moments. The orchestra's playing. Somebody's playing. And, uh, and I got a score in front of me. And I'm trying to keep tabs of the offstage elements. And, the, and so I just wish I had more time. I had an, another rehearsal or at least one that, you know, the segues. That seldom do we rehearse segues. You know, they, the, the idea is, oh, they'll figure it out in the show. Well, then the segue could be like there's a host. A host mic's going to set up the next couple tunes. And the hosts are typically celebrities. And the celebrities don't come to rehearsals. They come to the show. Yeah. So, you know, and... and yeah, you see you have an SM7. So sometimes I put that mic out because I know that mic well. And I think, well, I, I want to have something that's pretty directional. We, oh, we don't want a mic like that. We want a handheld. Um, okay. Yeah. No, we want a headlock. Oh, I can't. A headlock. I, I didn't get a sound check with a headlock. And I, said, I don't know if they, do they put, do they project? Are they going to give us enough level? Yeah. So there's a lot of um, things that you have to adapt and be ready for. But, but that's kind of part of the thrill of it, too to be honest with you. Last question, Fred. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you received from somebody or you learned along the way? That's a tricky one. Uh, I'm trying to think because I don't think everything I've done or, or, or been part of is, I, you know, again, it's that definition of business. You know, I think in terms of career or what I do, because I do a lot of stuff that I don't get compensated for. You know, I mean, it's just, passion and and why i mean i i've been fortunate because i followed something that i enjoy doing um and the hours that i do it whether i'm fooling around with a effects processor or trying out a new plug-in or some you know new uh, converter or something no one's paying me you know it's not like i'm on the i'm not i'm not on a salary position i'm an independent contractor so it's pretty important to not expect to be compensated all the time at least financially um it's it's important to have a good attitude it's important to keep your eyes and ears open and you know take opportunities when they um, pop up i spent a lot of time with colleagues you know that allowed me to tag along and so i would be sitting in a in a place that there was a conversation going on that was above my head but dean jensen of jensen transformers was there and stephen paul and and you know pretty smart folks that spent a lot of time and, and had a lot of passion for audio and and i wasn't necessarily contributing i was just kind of absorbing and so i think it's it's important to get involved as much as you can and, and participate and show up you know, and it's gotten funnier or trickier with um, liability these days. You know, I mean, there was a time when you could go and hang out at the stage or whatever, and it wasn't such a problem. But now everyone's concerned about being law, um, sued or something because something happens. You know, you're out there, you trip over a cable, and next thing you know, you're suing, you know, that organization. And, and you were just there as a, an intern or mm -hmm. just a guest. So, a lot of places have kind of frowned on that. And then with all the security stuff that's ramped up in recent times, you know, it's become harder to 
just walk into a situation. I think it was easier when I was younger to kind of make yourself, um, uh, I, I think people could, would allow you to come in and, and see something that now is, is more, um, I guess, in, closed off. And I, and I think also people are sometimes, numb, you know, silly about, they, they film something or they capture something with a phone. And, and you, you know, you got to know that's not cool. You know, you go into these environments and it's just for you. You know, you're not capturing it. You're not shooting off any Instagrams or any things. Hey, check out who I'm with. And, you know, taking a photo of yourself at this venue with somebody in the background. Um, I've been fortunate because I'm not starstruck and I've never, you know, I'm, there's people that I admire and that, Oh my gosh, this is, this is an incredible you know, creative person. And I'm really excited to be working with or be around but I'm not starstruck like, oh, you know, here, please sign this or I want to be part of, you know, you noticing me. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have that in me. Um, so I think it's important not to be starstruck. I think it's important to follow your passion. I think it's important to not always look for compensation financially. Um, and I think it's important to have a really good attitude. Be, a, be, be positive. No one wants to hear about a complainer or somebody who's critical, you know. There's enough of that around us regularly. Yeah. I want somebody who's a contributor and somebody who's got a you know a positive attitude and and look outlook. And I know there's a lot of you know, poopy stuff out there to bring you down, but at least if you can look for the good in the elements um, and you know, I guess take the time to say, hey, this is good or this is an incredible opportunity, then it's worth it. You can find out more about Fred at sonitisconsulting.com. That's S-O-N-I-T-U-S, consulting, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, and Radio Public. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby.